Across the country, protesters are taking to the streets to fight against police brutality and systemic racism. The use of force by police departments, as well as the seeming militarization of many, has been a concern of activists for some time. Another concern has been the use of big data and surveillance technologies by departments to conduct predictive policing. Advocates for the approach say it helps police better marshal resources as the data is used to identify where hotspots of criminal activity might be. Opponents suggest the approach can just reproduce long-standing biases in the criminal justice system, compounding systemic inequality. The intersection of big data and policing is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Sarah Brain. Brain is an Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, who uses quantitative and qualitative methodologies to study the social consequences of data-intensive surveillance practices. She's the author of a book out this fall, Predict and Surveil, Data, Discretion, and the Future of Policing, which explores the issue of big data in policing. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us how you got interested in this particular topic? Sure. So I have kind of a longstanding interest in the criminal justice system, specifically in the United States criminal justice system. I'm actually Canadian. And so um, way back to when I was in college, I was sort of interested in the similarities and differences between the countries, U.S. and Canada. And one of the really dramatic differences is the scope of the U.S. criminal justice system and associated surveillance. Uh, So I had an interest in the criminal justice system and was focusing my work on incarceration But I became increasingly interested in sort of the front end um, of the criminal justice system, how people uh, came to be involved in the criminal justice system in the first place, which is through police contact. And sort of as my interest in policing was increasing, um, this was in about, you know, 2011, 2012, there was all of this hype about big data that was starting to happen where, you know, everybody was like, big data is transforming everything from, you know, sports to finance to education to marketing. And um, there wasn't a lot of work being done on the intersection of big data and the criminal justice system or policing specifically. And so I decided to start to look into that for my research. So you, you did this giant study where you were embedded for, for two and a half years with a police department. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what this kind of ethnographic study design entails? How did you, how did you identify L.A. as the host of this and, and, and how this, how'd this happen? Yeah, so I was interested in how the police use big data. Um, and the, the first stage of that was figuring out sort of what police department would be best to spend time with. So the LAPD is by no means a representative um, department. It is a very large department. It's one of the um, departments that covers the most area, the most people, has the most officers. And so I selected it specifically because I figured it might be kind of on the front lines of police use of big data and might like forecast trends um, of how future departments might start to use data in the coming years. So it definitely isn't representative, um, but it is sort of on the cutting edge of police use of big data. And so I set out basically to get access to um, 
well, at that point, I was open to the LAPD, Chicago PD, or NYPD after doing a bit of exploratory research. One of the very first things I found is that a lot of police departments that at the time said they were using advanced analytics and such um, really weren't. Uh, so it, it was, um, I, I narrowed it down, perhaps unsurprisingly, to those three biggest departments and then tried to get access to all three. Um, and when I got a degree of access that I thought was good enough to really uh, really dive in and get like an on the ground understanding of what was going on with LA. I, I moved out there back in 2013 and the rest is history basically. So how, how were you treated? How were you received? You know, you know, overall very well. Um, my, the way that I framed this work was initially largely descriptive saying, you know, the LAPD is one of the most technologically advanced police departments in the country. Um, there are a lot of people, both civilian employees and sworn officers within the department that are very proud of what they were doing in terms of um, new sort of cutting edge technologies and uses of data. And so I just asked, you know, can you show me uh, what you do on the ground? And also there was this like openness to um, sharing some of the challenges that they face as well. So you know, a uh, crime analyst that felt underappreciated could kind of talk to me about that, for example, or um, officers that felt that the public didn't understand their job. Um, they would want to talk to me about that kind of thing. Now, all that said, there is this blue wall of silence, right? Like the police are notoriously um, difficult to gain access to, whether you're a researcher or you're a journalist. And and I constantly was, was sort of um, dealing with this balancing act of you know, wanting to um, be very, very open and receptive, but also being able to say when I didn't agree um, with something occurring, you know, being able to be honest in my writing, I guess, is what I'm, I'm trying to say. And so through the process, I have actually shared a lot of what I've written with a lot of the people that I did observations and interviews with. And a lot of the time they agree with what I write. Sometimes they don't agree with that portrayal. Um, in which case we have a back and forth. I say, you know, what do you not agree with? And they will give their standpoint. And so because it's very important to me that what I write is is factually accurate, because I think a lot of media portrayals of the police, you know, the police are so I mean, you know this better than me, but they're very resistant to talking to journalists a lot of the time because they feel there are these hit pieces and whatnot. So the ethnographic method really permitted me to have this like extended contact with people not just one-off um, interactions and, and sort of have a back and forth where um, it could be this iterative process um, of research. Could you talk a little bit about your training too and the combination of ethnographic and uh, quantitative research? That's so interesting. Sure, yeah. So I'm a sociologist by training. Um, my PhD is in sociology and social policy. And so I've taken classes in you know um, everything from like survey methods to ethnographic methods. And um, in this particular project, it, it, even though ironically it's on big data, it is entirely qualitative, um, even though I'd done quantitative work before, because really like there isn't just that good of, there isn't strong data on police use of data. And so this, um, this ethnographic approach was sort of the first step in, in mapping um, how different surveillance technologies and sources of data are used and so taking an ethnographic approach to these these questions around police use of data was really just kind of what was required of the question um, at hand initially 
Um, and so I think moving forward, a, a more mixed methods approach could, could be great, but it really was because there wasn't existing data on police use of data that I could leverage at that point. I, I love the fact that you described this, that there, there wasn't data on the use of data. Yeah, This is a real meta level. You know, this is, yes, uh, pretty uh, meta, uh, pretty quick, yeah. <laughs> so, so can you talk about a little bit about the, what's, what, is it, what does data look like that you collected? And given the data that you collected, what does an analysis look like from such data? Absolutely. So there's two main sources of data, um, basically, that I collected in this project. The um, first is interview data. So I would conduct in-depth interviews um, with officers, crime analysts, that kind of thing. Um, when they would permit me to, I would audio record them, and then they would just be professionally transcribed. Um, but in about half of the instances, the interviewees did not want me to audio record them, in which case I would basically frantically write interview notes. There are different ways of you know, kind of writing out interview notes where you, where you can get some direct quotes, and et cetera, et cetera, with, with your timing in the margins. Um, and then the second really, really critical source of data is field notes, um, observational field notes. So, for example, when I would go on ride-alongs um, in cop cars, I, I initially started taking notes by hand, but then I realized, you know, why am I doing this? I spend all day on the computer. I'm way faster at typing. And also it's kind of unnerving to people when you are taking like physical notes about them when you are talking to them. And so mm. I um, started using my phone. My phone was my main research tool because people are on their phones all the time anyway. Um, and so I would just use different functions on my phone um, and take notes that way and then sort of clean them up um, at the end of the day or the next day, that kind of thing, the, the field notes, but basically just writing a ton of field notes. And then there are different approaches to analyzing that kind of qualitative, largely textual data. I did take some photos as well, et cetera, um, but I didn't analyze the photos in any systematic way. That was just um, an additional data source. But yeah, there are different approaches and, and mine was basically like an iterative coding. One, one way of talking about it um, is that it was a grounded approach basically where I looked at like the different kinds of emergent themes coming out. And because it was such a long-term research project, I then when I would do follow-up interviews with the same people or interviews say a year later, I would focus more on certain themes rather than, okay, let's go through this huge run through of the in-depth interview. So I'd sort of refine the interview protocol, if you will, um, or what I would want to observe down the line based on the different findings that were starting to come out of the data. Could you talk about some of the misuse of data that you saw uh, in your observations? I thought that was really interesting. Sure, you mean the um, police misuse of, yes, of yes. data. Well. I mean, there. So there also is a bunch of off-the-record stuff um, that that I observed <laughs> as well. But I, I journalists I think it, know about that, right? Right. The main issue here, in terms of misuse, is that surveillance technologies, the things that you can do with them, so quickly outpace the rules and regulations and laws governing their use. So there's this massive gray area, basically, where it's like, is this allowed? can we even collect this data on this person? Can we search them in this database? Will anyone even know if we search them in this database without legal grounds, et cetera? So it, there's just this, and I would say that actually the majority of use of data in that sense occurs in that very gray space. And so that is where I saw so much activity. And, and in that sense, you know, police are human beings trying to do their job. So if a detective, say, is trying to solve um, 
a homicide and there might be information about an individual that they think is involved and they don't know whether or not it would be admissible in court, you know, it's very tempting to to get as much information as you possibly can. Um, so, yeah, I think that the, the existence of this massive gray area leads to a lot of questions about what's acceptable and non-acceptable use. We've had people on the show before talking about issues related, and we can net one guest in particular sort of wouldn't land on a def- definition of predictive policing. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how you think about or define this this concept of predictive policing in your work. Yeah, so I think of predictive policing in in very kind of simple general terms, and it's simply the idea of using historical data in order to predict where and whom are at higher risk of being involved in future criminal activity. Then how those predictions are are used or deployed by law enforcement, that can vary a lot. And I don't really necessarily think that that has to be involved in the definition. Um, You know, it may deploy certain resources, you know, you send your cop cars to certain areas and not others, or it may be, you know, go knock on these individuals doors, that kind of thing. But in in its most general terms, I think that yeah, predictive policing is just the use of historical data to predict um, future risk of crime. I was intrigued when, when looking at one of your papers, you had a, a, a nice figure that talked about the uh, how data has transformed policing. Mm, yeah. And I thought that that distinction of, you know, this this issue of, of the integrated data versus disparate data being mm-hmm. one of the most dramatic components. And also this the, the idea of a low inclusion threshold mm-hmm. that just that's that in some say since it's what what information is available and then how quickly you're prompted to use it seems mm-hmm. to be a big part of this story, like the alert-based. And this transition from predictive to exploratory or reacting mm-hmm. to things, seems it just, I hadn't really thought about kind of how it changes practice so dramatically. Could you talk a little bit more about some of those ideas? Yeah, well, that was really one of the benefits of, again, this like ethnographic approach, which is over the course of a few years, is that different divisions within the LAPD adopted different predictive policing methods at different times. So I was able to actually like do observations and interviews in places when they weren't using a technology and then they started, for example, or like as they um, adopted a a new form of predictive policing, say, um, to actually be able to observe that kind of change over time. Because, I mean, as, as statisticians and researchers, you know that there's like so much difficulty in knowing what actually you can causally attribute to an intervention, say, or a policy change versus, you know, a whole bunch of other forces. So all that is to say that, um, yeah, I think that the this idea of low inclusion thresholds, which is basically the idea that, you know, the police have always collected data on the individuals they interact with and come into contact with. But increasingly, the police are gaining access to non-police data or data about individuals who don't have to have any kind of police contact. Automatic license plate readers being sort of the Mm -hmm. simplest example. Um, Some automatic license plate readers are on cop cars or cameras mounted at intersections, but also a whole bunch of other folks have um, Alpers or automatic license plate readers too, like re- repossession agencies. And so um, law enforcement, just like anybody else, can sometimes um, purchase or gain access to those kinds of data. And so thinking about this like shift from query-based to alerts-based systems or you know, um, exploratory or reactive um, policing as opposed to predictive policing, one of the things that this kind of mass surveillance can do is it can can bring to um, law enforcement's attention people or incidents or things or places that they might have not noticed had they not been um, allocating their resources to them. However, I think that, you know, that would only 
um, fully transformed policing in that way if we had near perfect surveillance, um, which normatively is a question that I think we not want. Um, because at the end of the day, even though, yes, yeah, something like an automatic license plate reader is a mass surveillance tool, they're still deployed in certain neighborhoods more than others. So not everybody has equal chance of being in a database. It's a lot of the similar debates, like with um, DNA databases, for example, you know, conditional on committing a crime, does everybody mm-hmm. have equal chance of getting caught? Um, these, what was really like fascinating about this research is a lot of these questions that are typically framed in like a technical way, they're actually very normative questions about what do we even think the police should be doing and how should we be um, allocating resources and such. You're listening to Stats and Stories and today we're talking with Sarah Brain of the University of Texas, Austin. Sarah, what was the most surprising thing that you, as you were going back through your field notes and maybe sort of beginning to compile the book that sort of emerged for you as you were thinking through the work that you'd been doing? Yeah, I think that the most um, surprising or unexpected thing, which I mean, and this is the thing about findings is like, in retrospect, of course, it makes perfect sense. But like at the time, I was surprised by it. Um, was actually on my very first ride along. So I, as I'd mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I selected the LAPD because it's so technologically advanced um, relative to a lot of other police departments. And on my very first ride along, you know, we, we pulled up at a particular address. It was a house, kind of like an abandoned or an unoccupied house. And the sergeant typed in in his in-car computer, you know, that he was a particular code at the address. And I was like, is there not some automated way of knowing where the the vehicles are like I picked the LAPD because I thought that that so much stuff was automated and that it was really technologically advanced. And he responded, oh, yeah, you know, all of the cars are equipped with AVLs or these automatic vehicle locators that ping the location of the car every five seconds, but they're not turned on because of resistance from the police officers union. And so it was in that moment that I had this light bulb of, you know, like I, I need to be be thinking of of this situation from sort of a, a labor perspective and a work perspective. You know, these officers are employees that resist managerial surveillance just like anybody else. And that really shapes um, how policing plays out. And so it was that very like, again, not really a technical story, but again, like a very deeply sociological story um, of what was going on. What what other things did you learn from the ride-alongs? I'm I'm sort of picturing you in the helicopter with them, or picturing <laughs> you in that. I mean, what what aspects of of what insights did other insights did you glean from that that part? Of yeah, the data so to be honest, I don't know that the helicopter was that germane. It was to just my cool. Research, huh? But like, I'm not going to say no to going on a ride-along in a helicopter. You know? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so the ride along specifically, I mean, I think this is particularly relevant to the conversations going on now around defunding mm, or mm. shrinking or abolishing the police is that the cops are called to so much stuff that I don't think the cops need to be at. But if there's a call for service, they have to respond most of the time. And so, you know, so much of what we would respond to now when you're on a ride along, you're never the the first at a scene like you have to have someone else go i'm sure it's liability so they don't want some researcher getting killed or whatever but um they're responding to you know all, all of these things that that probably would be way better dealt with by a much less sort of punitive or enforcing institution and um in in some ways you know the cops hands are tied when they have to respond to something you know if someone calls them in i, I think it speaks as much to um 
how sort of enervated or like emaciated our our welfare state is in the United States that um, folks in really desperate situations, you know, I, I think I saw a lot of people on the worst day of their lives, basically. Oh. Oh. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, the cops often shouldn't be there. Um, and, you know, if I think of the, the worst days of my life, I think in many cases, the cops showing up might might make it worse. Um, and so I think that was something that, that really struck me was like a, a deep sort of sadness, um, a, about mm. when the cops are called. Um, sometimes those people are in really desperate situations. Mm. Sarah, that reminds me of, I guess that was NPR. I was listening to a researcher was pointing out that about 80% of all crime investigations involve misdemeanors. I think what you were talking, alluding to there is about you know, the cops don't probably need to be at a lot of these places. Mm -hmm. Is there, and given your Canadian background, is there a, is that same kind of statistic true in Canada as well? And uh, you, you mentioned some of the differences yeah. between Canada and the U.S. earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So I haven't actually like done comparative research on Canada. So this is entirely anecdotal or as I, some, I heard someone recently call anecdotal stuff artisanal data. I like that. <laughs> That's pretty that good. Phrase. Um, <laughs> yeah. So just thinking about my artisanal data. Just producing small topic. batches. I'm trying exactly. to picture this. this in little nice. mason jars. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think I, I taught a class, for example, um, back at the University of British Columbia that was on urban poverty. And, and we actually had, you know, guest speakers come in, including cops from the downtown east side, which is where the majority of, of um, extreme poverty and, and drug use, etc. are. Um, but crime rates are lower, way less people are armed. Um, and the interventions, there are um, more non punitive interventions. So for example, there are safe injection sites, decriminalization of marijuana, you know, these sorts of things, which which opens the door for um, more medical or social service professionals to come in. Now, that said, I don't want to say that, like, oh, you know, if we just reassign all of these, quote unquote, social problems to medical or social service professionals, everything will will be fine. You know, a lot of the time benevolent interventions can can sort of um, turn into this like more harder edge of social control um, as well. Uh but yeah, I do think that just the criminal justice system in Canada is is so much smaller. And the more I learn, you know, the more I think, um, much like with mass incarceration, the question is not necessarily, you know, how do we incarcerate better or how do we police better? But like, how do we incarcerate less or police less? So so what's next for you? I mean, I, you've, I saw that you might be looking at thinking about medical care and criminal justice systems as those two systems in their yeah. intersection. Yeah. What, what might so, that look like? What are you, what are you exploring? Yeah. So actually in the early stages of this project with the LAPD, I was sort of pursuing two different potential research projects because I didn't know if I would get the degree of access um, required to the LAPD that I, I thought I needed. And so, so the other project was in um, an emergency room in Philadelphia, basically looking at um, what are called custodial patients, like um, trauma vics that are brought into the emergency department in police custody. Um, so typically those would be folks with like gunshot wounds or um, something like that. And then looking into how 
um, information is shared across those institutional boundaries. So across um, medical and criminal justice institutions. So for example, there is um, some data that is reported mandatorily, right? So when the, the assumption is whenever there's a gunshot wound, there is maybe some criminal activity involved. And so it's mandatorily reported. But there's a lot, again, in this gray area that's highly discretionary um, of what kind of information lawyers, cops are going to get on on what happened. You know, there are these narrative parts of electronic medical records, for example, that that would probably be very interesting to um, lawyers in a given case. So I am interested oh. in looking at how the same data um, can sort of be used very differently across different institutional boundaries, um, doing some comparative work in the future. And then I also have a smaller project um, following this stuff that I've observed in the policing context into the courts. So into the future stages of criminal justice processing. So, for example, you know, if if the police have been using, um, say, there was a predictive policing algorithm and that's why they were in that particular place or this individual had a high risk score and that's why they stopped this guy and then ended up arresting him down the line. Um, does that make it into the documentation that is, you know, part of the affidavit to get the arrest warrant? Or is it admitted as evidence? Is this um, in discovery? Or is all of that kind of erased? Like how following this, this big data policing further into the criminal justice system, um, does it come up or, uh, or is it invisible? Hey, I'd like to, I think we all like to congratulate you on your book that's coming out. Okay. And what I want to know do you still get to change your introduction in light of all the stuff that's happening? I know. Oh, my gosh. I know. Seriously. Really? No, like the page proofs are Oh, my done. gosh. You'd think they'd want to do this just to promote the book better, given how timely it is. I know. I know. Well, I will I will give you guys the, the, the press's oh information. You can tell them to do a second edition where I can write an updated, updated intro. Yeah, yeah. But, um. But yeah, I think though the thing is that like it's also important. This is such a sort of historian's take, but like it's important to recognize that even though all of this stuff is, is so urgent and so important right now, like this has happened before. You know, police brutality, racist institutions. You know, these ha these have been around for a really long time. And actually, the whole reason that the LAPD started using predictive analytics and data in the first place was because they got sued by the feds, right? They were under this federal consent decree whereby they needed to comply by certain standards in the exchange of the withdrawal of the criminal charge. And so by, by sort of removing these all too human problems of bias, discretion, racism, and instead doing data-driven decision-making. Um, that was how a lot of these, these um, technologies and, and analyses came to be in the first place. And so I think in a sense, it can kind of be a cautionary tale, right? Where um, now there, there are a lot of reformers suggesting data-driven policing as the solution to racist or biased policing. And of course, while I think data um, needs to play a role, um, it's not sort of the silver bullet necessarily that some folks yeah. may think a, it a is. A bias that you have, if it's implemented in a model, it's still biased. Definitely, so, it reproduces it, but yeah, it makes so it look it doesn't, Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I'm curious if, if your work and your, your the study that you did was part of the inspiration for the Texas Prison Educational Initiative that you've been involved with. And if you can talk a little bit about the impact of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Texas Prison Education Initiative um, is just a group of volunteers uh, at the University of Texas. It's primarily graduate students and faculty members who volunteer teach college classes, college credit classes in prisons in Texas. And so 
Um, it again sort of stems from my longstanding interest in the criminal justice system. I taught in prisons um, for a few years when I was in graduate school at Princeton. And when I moved to Texas, I figured, you know, oh, there's probably some similar uh, prison ed program here. You know, God knows there's enough people in prison in Texas to have one, but um, there wasn't. And so I um, set that up and, and we started teaching in a juvenile facility and now are also in an adult facility. And it's interesting, like while it very much um, is part and parcel of, of the same bundle of interests I have in, in how institutions in the United States are, are implicated in the reproduction of inequality, um, it, it is much more of a direct service thing. And I don't currently have any um, research component to the program. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, down the line that that may be something that we end up pursuing. We, there are so many more people that want to take our classes than um, we are able to enroll. Um, and just because we sort of have limitations in terms of how many folks we can offer it to. So all that is to say that there is um, we're oversubscribed so we could have some random assignment of, of different people and stuff. But for me, it was really important in like starting the program to have it be just very simply direct service delivery. Um, and, you know, education has really transformed my life and therefore I just kind of wanted to afford that opportunity to folks that were having it denied to them, basically. Oh, very good. Sarah, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for talking to me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.